So we're back again to the same three readings uh, for this cycle from Acts, from the book of Revelation, and from John's Gospel. We're firmly now into the switched gears period, which was from the resurrection appearances during the great 50 days for about three weeks. And then we began to, began to switch in the readings to readings about how, you, how the church, the people of God, appropriated the resurrection faith. How did they decide to live? or What were the issues that uh, asked questions about what it is that we should do based on the circumstances in which we were living or they were living? So from Acts today, we have the story of Lydia. And from the Revelation, we have another vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. And in John's Gospel, we have Jesus in the farewell discourse beginning to talk about uh, the disciples' separation anxiety and what is, how they might think about what's going to come. And it just popped into my head because last week uh, at the 11 o'clock coffee hour, somebody was talking about Bible translations in the King James Bible so I may say something about that, and I think it's going to be towards the end when I talk about John. That way, I don't think I'll go on and on and on. <laughs> so, but it might be of interest, I think, to talk about this. Once again, we're indebted to the Revised Common Lectionary because today we, we didn't read very often, if at all, in the Eucharistic Lectionary about another um, woman leader in the early church, Lydia a seller of purple cloth. And we're beginning now in the book of Acts. Some scholar, biblical scholars call this the Macedonian missionary work. Paul and his associates have come into this area. It's not far from Philippi. Remember, these are not hick towns in the ancient Near East. You have to remember that Christianity began as an urban movement. We hear all the stories in the Gospels about Jesus and his itinerant minister walking around in the sort of rural parts of Galilee and Nazareth. And all. But uh, in, in terms of early Christianity and in terms of the post-resurrection faith, we have Paul in cities. And he's preaching the Gospel to people in cities. So, say, Philippi might be 40,000 people, which is pretty big. Maybe not quite that big, 20,000, let's say. Antioch was really big. It was in the six figures. So he's there, and he meets Lydia. The significance of this is, first of all, to remind us again of women's leadership in the early church, certain customs that we see that may seem trivial to us and hardly uh, indicative of true um, broad-mindedness, but when it says that Paul and, the, and his followers sat down with Lydia and her cohorts, uh, that's not insignificant because they were talking to them, treating them as equals, and understanding that they were large supporters, both in terms of time, talent, and treasure, but also the leadership of uh, the early church in that area. And I believe that uh, there's historical support for the fact that they were 
the core leadership of the Philippian congregation or congregations. So this is a story about that, but it's also a story about something else. They sit down with her. She says that she'd like to be baptized. They baptize her and all of her associates. And then she says in so many words, if you trust and believe me, please come to my house and stay. She offers hospitality. And so this is one of the locations in the church, uh, in, in the in the biblical witness that gives support to an emphasis that has been uh, in the Episcopal Church, certainly in the last five or six years, about radical hospitality. That's the important thing. And that we need to be concerned about that. Draw the line not just from the internal church life and the Sunday, which is very important in this sense, but also in your own life. And how, how do you practice hospitality uh, within the constraints of all of the distractions and the busyness uh, that we're all involved in? And that that's an important thing. So this is also about hospitality and its centrality to the Christian faith and life. Uh, this is completely off the subject, but when I was in Paris I, about tw 30 years ago, my friend David Holton, who was uh, on the, the, the unpaid staff of the cathedral, the American cathedral in Paris, was there studying. And I went to church on a Sunday and uh, the Sunday before that, the uh, wife of the former dean, Riddle, the cathedral in Paris was uh, founded by uh, St. Bartholomew's Church in New York City, which was a church in Manhattan. And um, Dean Riddle lived in Paris for 25 years and never learned how to speak French. So Mrs. Riddle was there the week before and as church was over, she came out and saw one of her old friends from the cathedral, and she said, oh, the place was packed, but nobody was there. <laughs> uh, you know, Episcopalians have been guilty of that kind of hospitality for a long time, and it's got to go. You know, and we're the only ones, in some sense, that can change it. But what we get from this text is the importance of radical hospitality and the importance of how the church's inclusive work, even in a feeble way, was beginning from the jump in the book of Acts. In Revelation, we have another vision, and this is of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the writer is speaking in very... Uh, spiritual and mystical terms about what Jerusalem looks like. Uh, it's one of the locations for what Father Keating said about the great 50 days, God's light. And the writer describes that God's light is so bright, it's never dark there in the new Jerusalem. And we understand how that is uh, part of how we see the illuminative processes of God at work in the hearts of all faithful people. But I believe it gives support to, to me holding the preterist view of what happened in the book of Revelation because this was written after Jerusalem was destroyed. So the writer is speaking about a historical reality that he knew about. And if he says in this sort of mystical interpretation of the New Jerusalem that there is no temple there. 
He's right. There is no temple there anymore. And so he said, well, uh, who is the temple? Where is the temple? And for him, the temple was Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that, we don't need to locate the temple, uh, particularly in a geographical sense, but we locate it in the presence. So when we speak about where is God, God is in God's space. And in a sense, that means everywhere. So wherever we are, that presence is there too. And you and I have access to God's light, God's life, and God's love. Uh, John of the Cross, who was a great friend of Teresa of Avila, uh, wrote a little book called The Dark Night of the Soul. But the way he described the dark night was not dark. It was so bright, it was like dark until you were fully able and accustomed to, the, to be able to see in the midst of the brightness of the presence of God. And so in the spiritual journey, this is something that you're given the ability to do through something we'll talk about in just a minute, which is in the gospel. But the writer of Revelation is speaking about uh, this light and that the illuminative processes of God move beyond Jerusalem. So if, you, if we say the people who read the book of Revelation understood it in terms of things that had already happened, they knew that Jerusalem could not be physically the location of the temple or the presence because it was destroyed at this point. Well, where is it going to be rebuilt? It's going to be rebuilt in the hearts of all faithful people. So we do replicate locations and holy places in our common life, like churches. You know, one of the things that impressed me about St. Luke's when, uh, before I was elected rector is I came here and I went inside the church. And it, it, it's a cliche for some people, but when you come in here, you realize that this is a place that has been prayed in for a long, long, long time. And you can feel it. And it's a place where there's been a lot of crying and a lot of sadness and a lot of joy. And I think this is what the writer is speaking of in this particular text. But now it transcends, it transcends this very small location and has expanded it. At the same time, holding... Uh, the importance of where all this, in some sense, started. The new Jerusalem. And remember last week, we talked about a new heaven and a new earth. So what people are going to think about, if they put two and two together, is we have to be part of bringing the presence to the world, and we have to be part of the new heaven and the new earth, and how we understand that in a broader and more expansive sense than our forebears did. In this case, the people of the covenant originally, the Jews, but also in this reading and in other places, it is the nations. It's everybody. Everybody gets invited in. Everybody gets to come in. And that's why it's important for us to practice uh, that kind of hospitality that is spoken about in the book of Acts.
In John's Gospel, we have a part of the farewell discourse, and today Jesus is giving comfort to the disciples and telling them that he's going to go and that uh, they don't need to worry about it because they're going to send and he's go- that God is going to send an advocate. In the original language, advocate can also be translated as helper. I like that better personally because the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, is a, is a help, isn't it? It's an aid. It's, it's part of the illuminative process. It's how, how that works. So Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit in this particular case. And when I was thinking about uh, the 11 o'clock coffee hour, I was thinking about translation and how that all works. Because somebody had seen a YouTube video or had read somewhere about a group of fundamentalist Christians in this country, they've been around for a long time, who believe that the only Bible that you should read from is the King James Bible. The King James Bible is the true word of God in English. And any other translation, even tinkerings with the King James translation, are not, are not correct, they're false, and you should not use them in your own private reading or in public worship. So here's a little lesson about this. The King James Bible was published in 1611. It is a triumph of the English language. It used more than one source for its translation. And those who insist on this would never listen to or agree with the fact that there's special pleading in what they have to say about this. The King James Version used the Greek New Testament and it used the Hebrew Bible. But it also used other translations into English that preceded the King James Version. A lot, if not 70% of the New Testament is from William Tyndall, who wrote an English translation that is extremely uh, highly thought of before he was killed in Antwerp. And it is, though, a translation that is filled with his own editorial views about what the church should be like as a radical reformer. So if you ever saw the movie A Man for All Seasons, Thomas Moore writes a letter to William Tyndall. And he said, you have made this translation and you have referred everywhere the other, the the, the Vulgate, the Latin translation, and other, have translated church. You have translated it congregation. Okay? That's special pleading on your part, since in the Greek text it says ecclesia, church or assembly, in some sense. So we have that, and then we have the advocates of the King James Version saying that the real reason, if you're going to be a real scholar about this, is that they've changed uh, the use of the texts from the original languages. Because when the King James Bible was translated into English, 
there was a, the, the, the Greek translation that was thought of as the best one is known. Keep this to file this on us. The Textus Receptus of 1555. And we got that from our friend Erasmus of Rotterdam. It was a very good translation. But there are better, trans, better Greek texts now than 1555. So they would reject the view that, 1550, that anything after 1555 is worth using. You know? Do you want your dentist to fill your teeth like they did in 1555? <laughs> I think not. And the same is true with the textual criticism that we're talking about in this case. So finally, in this reading from John's Gospel, we have... Um, talk of the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, when big changes in the church occur, uh, all of us, depending on what side we're on, but, but it, on the progressive side of things, will say that we believe the Spirit of God is, has moved us in this direction over time. And I happen to believe that. Reginald Fuller, uh, some years ago, before he died in a commentary, talked about what does it mean when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church's common life. Episcopalians have a church model of how things work, not a sect model or a model driven only by the biblical text. We believe in the church, the people of God, over time. It is not the work of the Spirit to convey ever new revelations but to enfold in ever new understanding, interpretation, and application the once-for-all revelation of Jesus Christ, all that I have said to you. But then he goes on to say, John, and we'll read this probably soon, in John's Gospel, I have more to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. Well, where do you think that comes from? It comes from the Spirit. People's lived experience in the church, in the community of faith, and how they understand their common life together, and how they, in ever new ways, begin to understand, well, if we're reading about all this inclusion in the book of Acts, and we're reading about this stuff, how are we putting it into practice in our common life as the church? How come it was that there appeared that there was women leadership in the early Christian church, and then slowly but surely that kind of like the, the air coming out of a tire, and it took us this amount of time to say, you know, the Spirit is moving us in a direction where we think that everybody, if you're baptized, should get to do all these things if you have a vocation to do them, right? When this debate started in my early ministry, I remember at a conference or somebody, somebody getting up and saying, if you don't think women should be priests, then don't baptize them. <laughs> I'm serious. Don't baptize them. So the Spirit of God in some way works uh, in this fashion. And I have other things to say, but you cannot hear it or bear it now. So this week, think about uh, the Spirit of God. Know that you have an advocate, you have a helper always. The Spirit of God within you to bring you greater clarity about God's will and purpose and how important you are. 
the power to deepen your understanding of things that you need to know. You remember, well, you won't. It's so many years ago, Dennis the Menace cartoon, where Dennis the Menace says to one of his parents, you know, if I knew the things I know now at seven, when I was three, I would have had a better time. <laughs> you think that's true about your own life? Right? There may be some things that you know now, and maybe you should give it the right attribution. You know, I have other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You may be able to bear them in the not-too-distant future. And what that means, of course, is, is that God will place into you uh, the tools in your hands to help you be the instrument of God's grace, peace, and love that you're called to be. Amen.